Greetings, everyone, and welcome back from what I hope was a great Memorial Day weekend. We've got a fantastic show coming up with Mike Maltair of stream to see and I want to give a quick heads up that there is a portion of this conversation where we touch on some mature science-related subjects that might not be suitable for young audiences. So listen to this episode away from the little ones if you think it's necessary. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. This is your go-to show to learn about the most inspiring people living, working, and recreating on the American shorelines. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and today we are talking sunscreen and body products, things that so many of us use but rarely think about how they affect our own health and impact the environment around us. And with me today to help inform our conversation is Mike Maltair. He is an expert in eco-conscious body products and is the executive vice president of Stream2C, which is a body care company that makes human and water safe body products. Mike, welcome to the show and thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Jenna. I really appreciate it. Now let's take care of a little housekeeping and hear a brief message from our sponsors. We have three sponsors on the American Shoreline Podcast Network that keep us alive and going. Dune Doctors out of Pensacola, Florida, a firm dedicated to the restoration of dune systems with native and natural uh, plants, led by Frederic Barisset. Very good company. Find them at dunedoctors.com. And Coastal Engineering Consultants, headed up by our good friend, Michael Poff. They are out of Naples, Florida, and you can learn all about them at coastalengineering.com. And LJA Engineering with 28 offices in Texas and around the Gulf of Mexico. Outstanding coastal engineering firm led by Bill Worsham in that section. Uh, Find them at lja.com. Okay, so Mike, I am really looking forward to our discussion about stream to see because the work you all are doing is so important. But because we only just met a few weeks ago at the EarthX Summit in Dallas, I would love to learn a little bit more about you and your background. So will you share um, a little bit more about where you are from and some of those formative moments that come to mind when you reflect on how you got to where you are today. Certainly. Well, it's it's been a very interesting road. <laughs> and so um, how far back to start? Let's see, four years old. No, I was actually raised in Southern California and in Hawaii. I am part Hawaiian. And unfortunately, that just means that I have wide feet. I didn't inherit the beautiful skin. Uh, so I am frequently using a lot of sunscreen and have had to since I was very young. And watching in Hawaii, the uh, Hanama Bay is one of the most beautiful, pristine marine preserves when I am literally six years old. It was to the point where you could not walk into the water without running into fish or them running into you. It was that populated. We actually did something that, you know, we we know now that you're not supposed to do. We would feed the fish. But what we would do is bring frozen peas 
and put them down the swim trunks of friends of ours that had come from California or from somewhere else in the continental U.S. and watch about 40 three-foot-long silver fish try to get into their swim trunks to eat these frozen peas. It was an amazing experience and a wonderful time in the history of Hanama Bay. Since then, the two things have happened that really motivated me to get involved with this company. Um, well, I guess three. One is I sold a business that I was in, in education, and retired. Now, Stream to Sea is my biggest failure in life in staying retired. That didn't work at all. That was about 36 hours worth of, huh, how long can I sit on this beach? And then we moved into a passion play. The two other major motivators were my thyroid, which is part of my endocrine system, stopped working about 20 years ago. It was not a genetic thing. It was something that all of the medical people that I have talked to have said it was likely a environmental toxin. So that's very frustrating to me as someone who's tried to stay in shape and eat well and you know all of this sort of stuff, use all organic products and everything. Um, second thing was I took my daughters back to Hanama Bay about 10 years ago. And if you really study chemicals in sunscreens and shampoos and conditioners and lotions and all that sort of stuff, the UV inhibitor oxybenzone is a benzophenone. And at 62 parts per trillion, right? That's not very much, right? The concentration is literally one drop of oxybenzone in six and a half Olympic sized swimming pools. And it starts to affect the ability of coral larvae to breed. So one drop in six and a half Olympic sized swimming pools, 62 parts per trillion. The last time I checked, Hanama Bay was sitting at 29,800 parts per trillion. There is such a high concentration that coral cannot breed in this beautiful marine preserve. And the problem with all of these endocrine disruptors is, is many of them are actually estrogen mimickers. So there's so much estrogen in the water in Hanama Bay, within 30 minutes of me being in the water, they can test my urine and my estrogen levels are off the charts. So if you picture a fish like a wrasse or a parrotfish, they have trouble converting. They, they need to, to breed. They need to convert from female to male. If there's too much estrogen in the water, they can't make it. Last time I was there, I was unwilling to go into the water because the levels are so high. And a tourist came out of the water and talked to a marine biologist that was next to us. And he said, I saw a bizarre fish. It was red, white, and brown at the front and kind of peacock colors in the other half. What was that? And the researcher said, oh, that's Pat. Pat has been trying to convert from female to male for the last two years and has not been able to. Oh, poor Pat. Poor Pat. <laughs> yeah. So to me, that's really my motivations to get involved with this company. Um, at the stage in my life, it is incredibly important to me that things meet all of the requirements. And that would be that it, it serves a higher purpose, like it's helping humanity, it's helping the planet, it's 
an ethical company all the way down to we put everything on our label, right? We don't hide anything, even though the FDA says we can. We're not going to because anything that we can do, we're going to hold to the highest ethical standard. So there's a, we, we have a bit of a connection here because I also am from Hawaii. So that's exciting to meet somebody else that is from there. I grew up in a military family. So we actually, I was born there my brother was born there and we, we, uh, we lived there twice and um, I love Hanama Bay. And I, I actually think when we, we met in Dallas, we were talking about our, our experience exploring there and, um, how fun it was before we before we knew better um, to go into the water and you know feed all the fish and be surrounded by all these beautiful tropical fish and then um, you know a few years ago it had been about twenty years since I had been back but I was finally able to make it back and I was revisiting all of these places that I had these incredible childhood memories and um, you know Hanama Bay I thought it was pretty impressive because. Now they they make all of the people visiting, you know, sit in a room and watch a film um, that explains proper behavior around coral reefs and not stepping on them and, you know, how to interact with wildlife that you see in the water and in the bay. But as I was listening to you speak, now I am wondering if there is a way for us to, to get them to message about sunscreen in the water or if that's something that they're trying to do, I certainly am not familiar and I haven't done a lot of research on if they've been doing that. But in my memory, they didn't mention anything about chemicals in the water and how it impacts the reef. Um, so that might be an interesting uh, a way to, to connect with the folks at Hanama Bay and other beaches and, and reefs um, to raise awareness about not only the proper way for tourists to interact with the reef in terms of not destroying it and touching it, um, but also, you know, what, what the body products are that they have on their, their person, um, can in, how they can impact the reef. Um, well, and that's one of the more frustrating things that for, for someone who is of Hawaiian descent and grew up there, uh, Hawaii is actually doing a good job of getting the message out. But there's so much misinformation out there that it's incredibly frustrating. So to give you an idea, Hawaii has passed a ban that goes into effect, I believe in 2021, and they are banning oxybenzone and octanoxate. Those are two chemicals that have been shown to be endocrine disruptors or estrogen mimickers, and they do kill the reef. Uh, most of the concentration has been on specifically the reef and not the human side of it. I think we would have much more impact the people that are landlocked states, if we talked about what it does to the humans or to the freshwater fish, you know, or the, the river in British Columbia that I've been working with, they found sunscreen chemicals in all of their salmon eggs and haven't had a viable salmon uh, hatch for a number of years. We just worked with them to uh, change out all of their sunscreens and everything so that it would change things. But the part that's frustrating to me about all of that is by banning two chemicals, it has given the chemical companies time to come up with another chemical that hasn't been tested yet. And so we've replaced most of the chemicals like an oxybenzone. They now use avobenzone. Well, I don't think you need to be a chemist to know that there's some similarities between an oxybenzone and an avobenzone, right? I mean, it, it has a very similar name. 
Now, there are different properties to it, and it has not been tested as thoroughly as oxybenzone because it's a newer chemical, and it gets around the ban. But if you look at the latest study out of Sweden, which the guy has now gone underground who did the study because the, uh, the lawyers are chasing after him like crazy, but he said any of the benzophenones, if you're exposed to either of those chemicals or another number of benzophenones that are out there, not only are they an endocrine disruptor, not only are they estrogen mimickers, unfortunately, avobenzone is not as stable as oxybenzone. So they had to add octocrylene, which has been banned in other countries that, uh, because of its endocrine disrupting properties. But it actually goes epigenetic. So if parents have benzophenones in their system, which currently it's over 97% of all Americans have benzophenones in their system right now, if they go to reproduce, the children come out with altered DNA. So they actually have an estrogen receptor problem. They don't work as well. They have an endocrine system that is not as effective. I have seen numbers as high as 30% more likely to get Alzheimer's. 30% more likely to get uh, Parkinson's or other neurological disorders. And unfortunately, because of the raised level of estrogen, there was actually a study that showed that male children, if you can conceive of a male child, are actually 30% more likely to have a micro penis. Not something that we usually talk about. However, people in the middle of the country that might have more of an impact than, hey, guys, you're damaging the reef. Yeah, and I mean, that's certainly one way to get someone's attention is <laughs> to start talking, right. talking it, about micro penises. I mean, you can start talking about the, the health impacts and, you know, evolutionarily the way that this is working its way through different generations. And, um, you know, as much as we might want everybody to really care about that and pay attention um, you know, you throw out micro penis and I think you get a lot more people paying attention to what you're saying. Um, especially when, you know, you're talking, you're using large chemical names with the benzones and then endocrine disruptors. And just for listeners, if you're unfamiliar with endocrine disruptors, um, those are chemicals that interfere with your hormone system. Um, and it can lead to a wide range of different health impacts from, you know, tumors and cancer and birth defects and, other kind of developmental disorders. So um, just giving a little bit of background there for people that might not be familiar with what those are. They're really important, even though it might sound like kind of a boring word or a boring term. Um, they are very real and very scary and potentially could lead to a situation where your child has a micropenis or you have a micropenis. <laughs> See, and I was hesitant to say it and you've said it like 19 times now. So good for you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we can, so. we can speak freely on this show. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I was talking to a gal who actually was a go-between between NOAA, you know, the Oceanic Group, and NASA. Um, she was the person who kind of helped with the experiments between the two and the communication between the two. And she said, Mike, don't apologize for using terminology like that. Because if you really look at motivating factors, if you look at the National Hockey League and the National Football League, they had the cup as part of their uniform decades before they had helmets. Yeah, it shows where everybody's priorities are. <laughs> 
Right. <laughs> and, and as far as I'm concerned, I'm happy to play the fool and talk about people's junk on the air, right? <laughs> Which is really not something that you would normally do. I'm happy to do that if it ends up meeting the global need. Absolutely. Right. Because back to back to the motivation, if we're gonna save what was the latest thing I saw? Goodness, by 2050. Uh, two billion people are going to starve because the oceans won't be able to support them any mm -hmm. longer. Well, 70% of the oxygen for the world comes from the ocean. So if, you know, I have to play the fool and talk about people's reproductive systems uh, and we actually have oxygen after 2050, awesome, mm -hmm. right? I'm, I'm willing to go go that route. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure nobody's going to thank me for it, but he sounds funny while he's talking about it. So. <laughs> it's at least entertaining, but I mean, it's also knowing your audience and time and time again, you see where people's attention is drawn um, and what captures people atten people's attention. And, you know, that's, that's the route you need to go to message about it. So I think that's perfectly fine. Um, and so I, I also imagine that if you're operating within a space where you're pushing forward progress and change especially in the face of easier options or options that have been ingrained in our culture or society, um, or they have a lot of money from corporations backing them. Um, you know, for example, just how easy it is for consumers to pop into a convenience store and have thousands of products that are cheaply made and cheaply available to them at their fingertips, that in the face of all of that, you have to be quite passionate about your cause. And it's apparent that you are. Um, but have you always been an ocean lover and an outdoor enthusiast or where does that connection and that passion come from? Well, I think part of it is the Hawaiian heritage and the, in the growing up where I did, um, I learned to fish on Molokai and anything that we caught, there were, you know, elders around that would ensure that it got used correctly, right? We were not going to waste anything. It was a matter of a, a love for the Aina, the land, um, you know, a, a protection, right? The, the Hawaiians had the, the kapu system where long ago, even with, you know, next to zero population compared to the, the million or so that are there now, uh, they would close off different areas or different types of fish. Like you were not allowed to take those on the threat of death, right? If you harvested this sort of a fish or from this area, they would kill you because they knew way back when we rely on this, right? This environment is what sustains us. And if we don't take care of it, it's not going to take care of us. So that's been ingrained in me forever. And what I'm running into with this company is another thing that I'm passionate about, which is just education and information. And it's difficult to train the public who is so used to putting a chemical sunscreen on or the shampoo that they love that happens to have, you know, sodium lauryl sulfate that makes it foam more than ours does. Well, I'm needing to educate them. You don't need to use more, right? It's, it's actually an incredibly effective product. It's just not what you're used to. And my back to the, <laughs> the last line of discussion, uh, one of the people that I work with at Idaho River Sports out here, her question for people when they say, well, I like the stuff that goes on like this, or I want to pay a little bit less, or this is what I'm used to. Her response is, is your junk worth that? 
right? If really, do you would you prefer to start using Viagra soon because your estrogen's too high, or even talking to um, goodness, what was the name of the group? They're uh, uh, divers for breast cancer research with the newest information that was on oxybenzone free worldwide. It turns out that all of these chemicals that are in uh, sunscreens are also in most of our body care products. And one of the estimations that I saw out of France was over 85% of our body care products, meaning our shampoo, our conditioner, our lotion, everything else. On sunscreen labels, because it's considered an over-the-counter drug, you have to have those chemicals listed. But a number of them, and, and I heard from a nutritionist recently that there's 52 different chemicals, and he wasn't sure which you know, all of them were, but according to oxybenzone free worldwide, oxybenzone was one of them, uh, you can hide it under the term fragrance. So there's 52 chemicals that can be included in fragrance. And that's why so many different natural, you know, websites and things like that are saying, if it says fragrance and it's not naturally derived, you better question it because you don't know what you're putting on your body. That's fascinating because I always have questioned that when you see fragrance or, you know, some sort of generic term and you're like, what, what does that mean? What's in that? So I'm really grateful that you're on the show today to provide a little bit more clarity into what that might mean. So we can all be a little bit more conscious when we're going to the store and thinking about what we're putting on our bodies and into the environment. Um, and yeah, it's really interesting to think about that this spans well beyond sunscreen too. It's in so many different products. Um, and so now I think it would be a great time to hear more about stream to see um, in the products that you're developing and a little bit more about the background and the mission of the company. Sure. Well, how we started originally, uh, Autumn Blum, our chemist and founder and formulator and master diver and all around kind of just badass woman. She's, she's an incredible person. She sold her last company, which was an organic, you know, body care company and everything and was taking a little break and you know, of course, like everybody does when they take a little break, she was down in Palau diving. Um, side note, Palau actually banned 14 chemicals and put a $1,000 fine for anybody that sells products with those chemicals in it. So very comprehensive, which is great because that's where this company started. She was diving, was sitting at her safety stop and watched about 50 people jump off of a boat and watched the rainbow come off of them. And went, man, that's really beautiful. And then, uh-oh, I'm a cosmetic chemist. What is that? So her first product, she was really watching these dive boats where people put sunscreen on. They jump into the water. They do their dive. They come up for their break. They shower everything off. They reapply sunscreen. They sit out on the bow of the boat for a while until, you know, the nitrogens come out of their body and they can go back for another dive. So multiple applications of different body products and all of them being showered right out into the ocean. So the first product, she said, we, we have to do better. And she created a shampoo. Well, the shampoo was eco-certified. It was organic. It was a beautiful product. Had a huge order for multiple hundreds of thousands of bottles. And she said, you know, we've done everything we can. We got organic, we got eco-cert but we don't really know, right? There, there is no test for the aquatic environment without actually testing. 
So she put two drops into the aquarium on her desk, and by lunch, everything was dead. It didn't matter what it was, anemones, crabs, fish, everything. So the stuff that was in that shampoo, although according to EcoCert and organic and you know all this sort of stuff was wonderful for humans, it was incredibly toxic for the aquatic environment. So from that point forward, we had to completely revamp everything that we were doing, hired uh, a college to do all the testing for everything. We've had to grow things in the lab. We are you know, constantly harassed because we have tested on animals. And we take this so seriously. Autumn cries every time something gets injured and we have not had to test for years because we know our ingredients. But the initial tests, I look at that and say, if we had sold 250,000 bottles of that shampoo, we would have killed millions of fish. And so I look at it and say, we have tested on less fish than a seafood restaurant wastes every night. And that's worth it to me to save the rest of them. Yeah. And I think that's worth it for, it's just a really commendable thing that you all did too, because I could see in another situation, someone saying, oh, we have all of these orders. Look at all of this money we're going to make. You know, it's easy to keep pushing forward and just sort of suppress that, that knowledge you have now of, of your product, not fully um, meeting your own moral standards and the standards that are required to not kill off marine life. Um, And then, you know, taking the steps to find a way to create a product that won't do that. Um, And it's almost like, you know, you might need to sacrifice um, a few fish for the greater good of all of the fish that are in the ocean. So we can find a product that will will be healthier and that will allow us to recreate and immerse ourselves in this beautiful ecosystem and be gentle to it versus killing it off and harming it. I couldn't have said it um, better. I'll take it. That's great. <laughs> and, and really, there's a lot of sacrifices that have to come along the way, right? And that is that we couldn't put the product out really quickly, right? We had to end up doing lots of tests and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars ensuring that what we put out is going to be okay. And then by doing that, our ingredients are of the highest caliber and they are absolutely beautiful, high-end cosmetic ingredients. And then one of those hidden things that people never want to talk about is that oxybenzone is a petroleum-based chemical. If you put a beautiful, clean product like ours into a plastic bottle, trace amounts of oxybenzone may be able to come out into the product. So we even spend seven times more than a standard bottle and put it into a sugarcane resin bottle. So what we're losing along the way is all those potential big corporate profits, right? If we wanted to make a lot of money, throw some chemicals out there and put the the label reef safe on it because reef safe, coral safe, any of these sort of terms are not regulated at all. There is no definition for that. That is something that I would love to get into a little bit more is, uh, you know, what are those common misconceptions about products that are branded as reef safe or sustainable? Um, And I ask you this because as a consumer, I know I see them everywhere. And I think it gets at this really huge issue that we're seeing now with 
companies greenwashing themselves or in other words, deceptively marketing themselves as environmentally friendly. And this is a really big deal because many customers really want to trust brands. And I believe that most people want to do the right thing and they want to purchase products with um, a smaller ecological footprint. Um, And, you know, you start to see these brands with some sort of certification or stamp of approval on them. Um, You know, people are buying those and they place a lot of trust in these companies or corporations um, and groups awarding these certifications on these labels um, when really it's so much more complicated than that. So could you spend a little bit more time um, explaining, you know, the whole reef safe thing and, and what that means? Sure. So the term reef safe to me is kind of like the term natural foods. If anybody's familiar with that, that's another one of those terms that, that just has no regulation. It's a marketing term. It's not a scientific term. It is not a law. It is not regulated by the FDA or anybody else. It is something that people just put on there. And there's a number of those sort of terms. My understanding is baby safe requires a higher insurance when you put it into stores, but it doesn't require anything different on the label. There's a lot of things like that. Um, Biodegradable, for instance. Most people think that the term biodegradable means that it will break down when I put it out in a stream. Actually, the term biodegradable, my understanding is that it means it will break down in 30 days in sewage sludge. It does not mean that it will ever break down in freshwater or saltwater. And it doesn't mean that it's non-toxic until that 30 days being in one of the most bacteria-rich environments, meaning sewage sludge. So we actually had to pay labs to test in freshwater and saltwater. They had never done it before. So we actually know that our products are non-toxic. When you put them in right away, they will not harm fish, direct exposure. And by the end of 30 days, which we actually have it down to the hour, our products are actually safe to eat. I don't recommend it. They don't taste good. (laughs) We've tried. You'd think that a white sunscreen might be good on raspberries and you would be wrong. It is really not tasty, but the beauty of it is with your mayonnaise. Yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) You're, you're really going to be in for a shock. It, it actually is still safe and you can put it directly into your eyeballs and it does not sting. So where do you go to get this information? Unfortunately, most of the places are biased and it takes individual research to really learn about each of the ingredients in the products and to find out what each individual thing does. So you look at something like the the EWG, the Environmental Working Group, wonderful group with a great intention. They don't happen to like titanium dioxide. And my understanding from discussions with them is that it is because titanium dioxide, if inhaled in its chalk form, can be very detrimental to the health of humans and could cause death. That is not untrue. But when would anybody ever see it as chalk unless they were a miner? Right? I don't understand why that has any impact because none of the products out on the market provide any of it as chalk. And almost anything you inhale as a chalk can be very detrimental to your lungs. You don't want to coat the interior of your lungs. 
And along with EcoCert, the EWG, I have never found them to have a complete understanding of the testing for the aquatic environment. So while I think they have wonderful intentions and, and are probably very accurate in, in what it does to humans, it really has no basis for evaluating the aquatic environment, which I think is hugely important and just very different from humans and mammals, right? When you look at the fish and sea elegans and worms and nematodes, all sorts of stuff like that, they have very different bodies than humans. So what, um, I'm, I'm curious to know a little bit more about what does creating an eco-conscious and water and human safe product entail? Can you walk me through your product development process? Well, I think that Autumn is probably more well-versed in that. What it comes down to uh, for us was sending every raw ingredient that we were looking at to the university that was doing the testing, right? We, we had them work out of Eckerd College and when we found an ingredient that did no damage, then we would also have to mix it with the other ingredients to ensure that the formula of them did no damage and then move forward from there. So what we really had to look at a whole bunch of different levels because what you run into in this sort of product category, you either have something that works well, is good for humans, is good for the environment, and is nice to use, Usually you get one or two of those things. You don't get all four, right? Usually it's awful to use, but it's healthy, right? And just like the health food, right? And when they used to say it, it tastes awful, it must be good for me. Same idea with a lot of body care products is a lot of people don't like the way the healthier ones operate. But because Autumn is such an amazing formulator and has so many years of experience, she can look at a label and just say, oh, there's things missing on that label. So either they're less than 1% or they're hiding it in something else or there's something else going on. She knows exactly with her experience what each of these things is going to do just by looking at the ingredients. She'll look at it and go, wow, that's going to go on greasy. And then sure enough, it does, right? You try it out and you go, oh, that's not good at all. Or there's 70% chance that, you know, people are going to have an allergic reaction to this thing or there's not enough preservative to keep it safe. So maybe their preservative is something that they're hiding under something else. So it really just takes experience and trial and error and trying to find out. I mean, that's for us, it's so important. We put every one of our ingredients on our website and we explain what they are and the potential concerns at which concentration, right? Because there's certain things that people are allergic to that a lot of people aren't. Well, I want to make sure that it's on the label. I ran into somebody at Dallas where we met at the EarthX that was allergic to aloe vera, which Hawaiians, if you're listening to this, I know it's aloe to you, but they, they like to turn. I love Hawaiians because they turn uh, almost anything into the way they would speak rather than where they're from. <laughs> aloe is not a Hawaiian plant, but I know that we have it there. So what do you do, right? That's in our product. It's a wonderful thing and some people are allergic to it but we put it on the label because we want them to know yeah it's all about transparency and i really appreciate you all for that and i'm, I'm sure that many people listening and i know i certainly am are, are now wondering what can the consumer do to be more conscious of their purchases 
relating to products um, that are, you know, reef or marine safe, you know, how can we be conscious consumers in that way? Well, this seems like a really cheesy and smug answer. So I'm going to say it anyway, because I'm kind of cheesy and and I'm comfortable (laughs) with that. Go to stream to I mean, really, that's what it comes down to. Go to one of your dive stores, go to a natural grocer's and, and look at what's on the stream to see label. So we do have a lotion. We have a shampoo. We have a conditioner. We have a sting relief gel. That's just amazing. We have two different kinds of lip balms. I mean, people swear by this stuff. Uh, when, when I was talking to the people with the breast cancer research, somebody told me about a breast cancer and a number of other cancers actually have uh, an estrogen positive reaction. I was unfamiliar with this term, but some, my understanding from their description was that some cancers grow in an estrogen positive environment. I had no idea. Um, So, you know, they are the sort of people that are going to be reading these labels and making sure that this stuff is safe for them. And so to me, you know, we make the products. I am happy to tell you if somebody else's is clean. I mean, we are not about, you need to only use us. There are other options out there, but I don't know of a single other on the planet that has actually tested a mineral sunscreen and body care line to ensure that it does not kill coral larvae. I don't know of any other one. And nobody has come up to say, hey, we do it. You know, and we've been saying that for three years. So to me, it's that that's the safest route and that's, what I use, and every time somebody sways with it, I have two daughters, and they swear by this stuff. But every once in a while, they'll say, oh, I'm going to use this sort of face cream or something like that. And then they break out. And we figure it out that it was an estrogen-causing thing that actually caused them to break out. And then they freak out again, and they go back. But, you know, they're teenagers. They're allowed to change their mind. I'm, I'm cool with that. <laughs> yeah, and they're allowed to freak out, too, because hormones. Where this, is a whole, this whole discussion is about hormones. <laughs> right. Well, I'm a 50-year-old guy, right? So as far as I'm concerned, I'm not using anything else. And I am in, in pretty decent shape. But at 50, you're working your tail off just to try to keep all your parts operational and where they're supposed to be. So as far as I'm concerned, I don't need the help of estrogen. It is not worth putting on a different type of shampoo or a different sunscreen just because it goes on nicer, which in all honesty, um, since we came out with a tinted sunscreen, I have uh, fallen in love with it. I've always hated sunscreen when I was a kid, but but uh, this stuff's actually pretty amazing and it is a, a pleasure to use. And because of all the antioxidants, it actually helps my skin. It, it's really helping to... Uh, a better uh yeah 50 year old skin i guess <laughs> <laughs> and yeah to also to all the listeners out there too i mean maybe someone's listening to this and is like hey i know of a company that's trying to produce you know a product that is reef safe and and you know has minimal harm on our environment and that's a great way for you to interact with us and reach out to us and let us know because we'd love to know about them um, and put you guys in contact with stream to see so that we can all be working together on this because this is a huge challenge. And to give you an idea, Autumn was actually um, requested by the, I don't know if it's a president or whatever, of Palau, the island nation that banned a whole bunch of things. And he, they asked if she would come over and, and do some education. And she happened to be 
diving relatively close by. So she went over and, and did some training for them. And one little gal, 17 years old, asked a whole bunch of really pointed questions. Well, it turned out she was a, a native from Palau that was an entrepreneur to the nth degree. And she was creating her own sunscreen. And it was not quite working for her well. And so she was trying to get, you know, kind of information on the sly. And Autumn said, you know what, will you stay just a couple minutes afterwards? And Autumn went through her whole formula, figured out what was wrong, and helped her reformulate. Because it's about saving the ocean, saving the people, protecting all the babies, right? I don't care if it's a coral baby or a human baby. We want to protect these babies. So for Autumn, it was just second nature. Oh, you're so close. You have to take out this ingredient. She had something in there called clear zinc. And clear zinc, let's see, I, every time I've seen clear zinc on an MSDS sheet, right, the material safety data sheet, it says toxic to the aquatic environment. Although my understanding is you can still get an eco certification and have either a nanoparticle or a clear zinc and still get eco certification when it says that on the MSDS sheet. So that's where I'm saying most of those things don't deal with the aquatic environment. But we are happy to tell you what's in there. And really on our website at streamuc.com, there is an ingredients to avoid card. If you go through all of your ingredients on sunscreens only because finding out that you could hide it in fragrance in your lotion or something like that is incredibly frustrating to me. You don't know what's in there. But on a sunscreen, if it says anything in the active ingredients other than non-nanoparticle titanium dioxide or non-nanoparticle zinc oxide, I would not put it on me. I would not put it on my kids. And most of the scientists that are out there, including something that the FDA just recently said, that those are probably the safest options for us and for the world. Part of the reason that we actually went against the current, and instead of using zinc, we used titanium, because following logic, in the past, they used to put zinc screws into people's legs when they had gnarly skateboarding accidents and destroyed themselves. If they were going to put them back together, they would put them back together with zinc screws. And too many bodies rejected them. So they started using titanium. And I know that you're going to have some listener that says, I reacted the titanium posts in my earrings. Well, the unfortunate part is titanium is very expensive. So they started mixing it with nickel to make it cheaper. And a very large portion of the population reacts to nickel. Not very many people react to titanium. That's so interesting. I'm like, I'm just learning so much. Like, I feel like I could just sit here and listen to you talk all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. yeah. How much tape do you yeah, have? Right? No, How much time you do our listeners no, have? Uh, right, right. At some point I'll lose my yeah. voice and that'll be just fine. We'll stop. <laughs> so in addition to streamtosee.com, what are some ways that listeners can engage with your work? Are you guys on social media? Um, are there places where people can find your products and stores? Um, how can people find your products and engage with the, the company? Definitely. Um, we are on pretty much all forms of uh, social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, um, not doing as much with Snapchat and things like that. But yeah, Instagram and Facebook mostly. You can find us at a lot of dive stores. Like from a percentage standpoint, it's really high. 
And it's because divers are are very quick to see the problem. Like you and I noticed at Hanama Bay, uh, it's very quick for them to watch. Six months ago, that piece of coral was alive, right? And now it's not. And you can find it at health food stores. We're not in some of the really big chains yet. Natural Grocers is a wonderful one. I really am impressed by Natural Grocers because they vet all of their products so thoroughly before you can get in. Luckily, our science uh, made it relatively easy for us to do that. But still, they hung us up for almost six months doing their research to ensure that whatever they put into their store was a quality product. They banned most chemical sunscreens two years before anybody knew what they were talking about. So once again, that's a level of ethics that I am incredibly impressed with because I'm sure it cost them millions of dollars when people said, no, I don't want that mineral sunscreen. I want the stuff that, uh, you know, impacts my estrogen levels, but goes on really smoothly. I love that. <laughs> right. So good for them. Right. I'm impressed by that. Um, there's lots of ways to get involved. We have uh, like a brand ambassador, a wave maker program where if you're somebody that has a large following on you know, any of the social medias or you're trying to do conservation groups or you just work in education or you want to fundraise and, and educate at the same time, I am happy to do PowerPoint presentations or talks like this for almost any group that's willing to listen because I think that people need to know and there's a huge impact. Those wave makers actually get our ingredients to avoid cards. Like you can just ask for them, we'll give them to you. And they can get a coupon code whereby they promote the products to people and can get a commission based on that. Or it can go to their favorite charity that's helping with you know ocean conservation or environmental conservation of some sort. So there's lots of ways to get involved and engaged um, we just love grassroots because we've spent so much money on uh, our testing and our formulation. It's really on us to do the education. Unfortunately, what we're up against is people that have $40 million advertising budgets that like to contradict the science, <laughs> you know, and that, that is a frustrating aspect of this whole thing for me. But. Yeah, and it's pretty scary to think about all of the ways that people are marketed to in, in ways that they aren't even aware that, you know, they're being reached out to by a marketing team. Um, it's just so commonplace in our daily lives to be surrounded by advertisements. Um, and it just, it's going to take a part of, on the consumer to be more conscious about what we're buying and what we're putting on our bodies, because yes, maybe it has a smoother application or your shampoo foams a little bit more, um, but being a little bit more mindful of what are those long-term impacts and what are you actually putting on your skin and putting into the environment. So we can all, after listening to this episode, just try to take a minute when you're in the store when you're in the shower, part of your morning routine and start looking at your products and really like think about what's in there and is it worth it um, for you to be exposing yourself and the planet to everything that's in that, that bottle. And as we, as we start to wrap up, 
Um, I feel very fortunate to have a voice on this podcast and have an opportunity to share insightful discussions like this with my listeners. And because of that, I like to round out our conversation with a series of broader questions. And I really enjoy doing this because I, I have such a wide range of guests with all different knowledge bases and experience levels that I tend to get a, a pretty diverse range of responses and insights. And I think all of them are so valuable. So let's start with what do you think are some of the most pressing environmental challenges that we are faced with? Oh, that's a loaded question. Um, we have lots of really pressing um, issues. Uh, to me, uh, being at EarthX just recently, it was so interesting to learn things about uh, you know, nitrogen and fertilizers and how that's a third of our oxygen and things like that. The problem that I think we run into as a, as a society is each individual has a relatively limited scope of impact. But I think as a group, there are things that we can be doing. And so do I look at things like sunscreen as being, you know, that's going to save climate change or that's going to save the reef? No, it's not, right? There's, there's nitrogen issues. There's, you know, ocean acidification. There's, there's ocean rise. There's temperature rise. There's all these different things that are going on. The beauty of it to me is if we look at each of those things, it's overwhelming. And so as a company, what we've tried to do is provide something that not only affects you, but affects the environment practically immediately, right? So if I'm camping next to a river and I use a shampoo or a conditioner or a sunscreen like they had on the Cowichan River in British Columbia, I can be responsible for killing the salmon eggs, right? I'm, I'm, I'm one of the people that's doing something. If we just make a quick change like that, to me, that adds hope because every species that we still have alive is part of the ecosystem that's so important for us moving forward. So I think a lot of it is going to come down to corporations and nobody really wants to talk about that. But I think that things like the plastic pollution issue and all that sort of thing were actually corporate generated. And I'm, I'm not one to put down capitalism at all. Um, you know, I've run a number of businesses myself, but I look at it and say, marketing is an incredible thing and a very dangerous thing. The term litter bug was actually put together by corporations that had changed from refillable containers to disposable containers because it was cheaper for them. So I look at that and say, they blamed that on the consumer just to take the blame away from them. They spent millions of dollars on marketing the term litter bug so that they didn't have to take responsibility for it. I think there's a lot of corporate ethics that are going to have to come into this. So like I said, there are a ton of different things that are going on with that. What we need is people to just kind of wake up and look at what are we doing. And when you have somebody like an actress that's promoting a sunscreen that she puts on to her children, when she learns that her grandchildren are now going to have genetic issues because of what she did and made a couple million dollars off of on commercials every 15 minutes during the summer, I hope that they will look at it and say, it's not worth that money. I sacrificed my children 
to make that sort of money. What I'm trying to find are people that are going to stand up and say, you know, this is this is the right way to go and not need a million dollars to say it. Mm-hmm. Just say it because it's the right. And then on the flip side of that question, what are you hopeful for moving forward? Well, when I went to Kaneohe Bay and talked to some of the scientists there in, in Hawaii that are working on the reef, what I'm looking at is we've we've got reef that they're training to be able to handle some of the climate change. They're able to handle some of the temperature change without bleaching. They're doing incredible scientific work. We have a lot of the answers. We need to implement them. The problem with the reef is it can't handle the poisons. So it looks like we know what we need to do. We need to get the pollution and the poisons out of the water in the next 15 years. We, we have a date, right? And it is doable. And I think it's just a matter of doing that because my understanding from them is if we get it done in the next 15 years, 20 years later, the reef will be back to about where it is now. And then all the way back about another 10, 15 years after that to where it could be back to a pristine ocean. So I think we've been given, and there's a lot of different dates, right? I don't want to say I have the exact date. I was just watching one. Uh, My daughter did a a climate strike for high schoolers not that long ago. And there were a lot of, yeah, there were a lot of the kids that were uh, saying, we have 11 years and the planet's going to die. Well, I don't believe that's accurate. There are certain things that are going to happen. And we have certain thresholds where it will make it much more difficult to recover from. But I'm hopeful that in the 15-year window, we're going to be able to have enough impact that we're going to be able to see some of these things start to come back. Yeah, and I think that, you know, those those deadlines are nice to give a sense of urgency because we certainly need to be acting with that sense of urgency and swiftly and, um, you know, making really large changes in in many different aspects of the way that we operate as a society in order to, uh, you know, help move ourselves to a more sustainable future and avoid that apocalyptic situation that we we keep seeing. Um, And all the data is showing us with where the climate is is moving toward. Um, But at the same time, there are so many factors that play into how we arrive at those deadlines. Um, all of which could be changing and are constantly changing based on our own behavior and our own choices. I think where we're going to start to see more change personally, and I think this is just a human nature thing and it's unfortunate, but I think we're going to start to see some real damage in the next 10 or 11 years that will be the motivating factor. I just hope at that point we're going to, you know, then only have four or five years to accomplish what we need to. But I think... Like I have a daughter that's studying in Boston there at Northeastern University. She's a civil engineer and they flew her to Singapore to investigate the ocean rise that's expected by 2030. And Singapore being an incredible country that is very prepared for pretty much everything that you could think of um, is already ready. They've already finished all their, you know, whatever they needed to be prepared for the ocean to hit where it's supposed to at 2030. They then flew her to Jakarta and then to Bali. 
where a huge percentage, like I think it's eight or nine percent of their land mass is going to be underwater and they have no plans in place. So I think what's going to happen is some of these places without the infrastructure that are going to suffer greatly and we're going to see massive destruction will probably trigger the rest of people to go, uh oh, right? I think in places like Boston and New York and places that are built on harbors, we're going to start to notice yeah. it. In California, where I was raised, at the high tide marks now, some of the streets are getting flooded. So we're starting to notice, hey, there's a problem. And I think anybody on those coastlines, they're going to start to see destruction and things changing and need to react. Otherwise, in Idaho, yeah, yeah I'm going to be sitting no here in Idaho on beachfront property, and that's going to be just fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's no longer out of sight, out of mind. It's going to be when it becomes very real. And I, we already are feeling a lot of that in our very own country, I mean, around the world. But when you think about our last hurricane season that we had and then the wildfire season that we had out West, um, you know, these are very real things that are destroying people's lives and, um, you know, very slow to recover because we, uh, I mean, it's expensive and we aren't putting the right uh, resiliency plans in place yet. So, you know, it hopefully I think the won't. rhetoric. Yes. I don't think the rhetoric helps because I think what we're doing as a culture is being very divisive. And we have people on one side saying the climate change is scientific and this is what's happening. And we have other people on the other side saying, um, no, this is a natural phenomenon and it's cyclical. Mm -hmm. Both are actually true. It doesn't <laughs> yeah. matter to me, right? As far as I'm concerned, if the planet is going to do this naturally and is going to warm, Anything that I'm doing to increase or speed that up, I think it's worth the fight. Yes. Do we just want to lay down and die because it's a normal cycle? Or should we do something about it? Exactly. So to me, the conversation of it's fake science or it's fake news or it's this or it's that, I don't care. It's about humanity. The planet will be fine as soon as it kills us all off. And we're trying to help speed that up. That just mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense from a logical standpoint. Yeah, it's it's all comes down to a human survival issue. And it doesn't matter who's causing it or what's causing it. I mean, it does. In my own personal opinion, it does matter. Um, but, you know, for the greater the greater conversation, no matter if you think it's natural or if we're causing it, it's still happening and we need to deal with it. Well, just like to me, whether it's killing the reef or whether it's killing somebody's reproductive system, I don't really care, right? The discussion, if we're going to move forward, that's the whole thing. So if we need the people that are saying, you know, whoever, you know, whatever deity or whatever, you know, they believe in is actually doing this or the planet does this naturally or whatever, we need to be having a discussion with them that hits them where they're willing to move. So to me, great, believe whatever you want. Do you want your grandkids on the planet, right? Would you like them to be able to see a fish, to see a bird? If there's the chance that we're only doing 1% of it, but 1% is enough to make a change, why don't we do it? Yeah, exactly. Um, and to wrap up, I want to ask a two-part question because many of our listeners are really 
driven and inspired people and either young professionals or lifelong learners. And I think that there's so much insight that you can share um, and, and we can all be learning from each other. So I would love to know, what is the best advice that you've ever been given? The best advice I've ever been given? <laughs> wow. Um, it's a tough question. That is a tough question. Um, I think probably it was not a, a specific piece of advice, but almost an attitude. And it was passed along by my parents and probably through some of the schooling and my grandparents. I had a, a grandfather that taught me all about fishing and bird calls and and another one about nature. He used to work in the sugarcane fields and things like that. And for them, school was not the place that you necessarily were educated. It was the place that it taught you to be disciplined and taught you a love of learning. And to me, it's ongoing. There's never a time not to be researching. There's never a time not to be taking in new information and learning a new skill, right? So continually driving what we were talking about with things like raising children and stuff, it, we need to be consistent. The only thing I think you can count on in this world is inconsistency, right? Change, it's going to be constant. And if we're not flexible and we're not open to learning and we're not driving to figure new things out, where are we, right? We're stuck in a world that no longer exists. So when I was in school originally as a kid, most of what I learned was really good for the game Pictionary or maybe Jeopardy or something along those lines. But it didn't really help me in my day-to-day -day life very much because it was more about memorizing facts. And if you look at most of those facts, they're wrong now because the whole world has changed. I mean, yes, math and, and most of the science is still the same. But, you know, Burma's Myanmar now. So, so what difference does it make if you can memorize it, if you don't understand it or you don't know where to go to research and you don't have the drive to continue to learn? And then the second part of this question is, what advice do you have for our listeners? What advice do I have for your listeners? I think use your voice. Figure out, you know, what you're passionate about and what you're willing to do. I think that everyone has a place. Everyone's voice is important. I think that it's very big right now in the world to use their voice, but not really back it up with any engagement. And I had somebody explain to me the difference between activism and social justice. And I thought that it was an interesting description. So an activist looks at a building that's got stairs out in the front and says, this would not be very good for somebody that was not able to get up those stairs. So they, they, you know, have discussions, they have protests, they raise money and they get a ramp put in. Whereas a social justice warrior is offended by the stairs and gets them taken out. So to me, it's about activism. It's about what can you do? How can you engage? 
we need to use the voice, but we need to back it up with action. So when you learn that the sunscreen and the shampoo and everything that people are using, tell other people, but don't do it with shame. Don't do it with blame, right? We're, we're trying to come together and not be divisive. So let's talk about, hey, this is what I learned today. Kind of shocking, right? And, and leave it to them to be able to come up with something. I don't think the current route of using the voice without it backing it up just because we can be anonymous right? <laughs> and shaming other people. I, I know that I do better when I feel better. If we make people feel worse, do we think they're going to change? You know, I mean, how, how is that going to accomplish whatever our goal is? So I think, I think really being active in a productive way moves everything forward. And that would be my hope. And that's what we're really trying to do. We're not as interested in legislation as we are education, right? So there's a lot of these bans that are going on out there. I think it may be necessary because people aren't moving as fast or because the subterfuge of huge companies throwing millions of dollars at marketing to say everything that I just said on this podcast is false. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it, it comes down to, you know, let's, let's actually be educated about it and move forward. Well, Mike, I am so grateful for you taking the time to share your story with me and our listeners today. This was just so informative. Um, and I feel like I learn so much every time I talk to you. So thank you again. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, it's definitely my pleasure. And know that as a company that's so interested in education, we're happy to talk to you, right? We have customer service people that are everywhere. So not just you, you know, one of my favorite trainings ever was a sixth grade class out of Palo Alto. They had 35 minutes to listen to a PowerPoint presentation. And at the 35 minute mark, I said, I, I am happy to, you know, have you email questions and I'm happy to answer as much as you want. And the teacher said, could you hold on a moment? And I heard all the chairs scraping and everything moving around. I said, I'm just curious what's gonna happen. Sure enough, every child went back to their seat, opened their lunches and continued for another 45 minutes because they wanted to know, right? And this is a sixth grade class. I'm going, wow, I don't have the attention span of you know many 40 year olds this long and was so impressed and happy with the outcome because, you know, you now have 30 more educated people. Yeah. And they're curious and engaged and listeners, you heard that. So if you, you've listened to this episode and you want to know more and you want to continue this discussion, um, you can reach out to stream to see they're more than happy to give a presentation to you or have a conversation with you. So please, um, reach out to them if you would like to continue um, talking about this really important stuff. Um, and also, I would love to thank the listeners. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you like what you heard and want to hear more of this show and other outstanding content from my fellow hosts on this network, please subscribe to, rate, and review the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you listen to podcasts. And finally, be sure to like the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today on Facebook and follow at Coastal News 365 on Twitter because this is where you can interact with us and submit feedback on our shows 
or give recommendations for inspiring people for me to invite on as guests because I'm always looking for new people to talk to. Um, And then if you would like to interact with me personally, you can find me on Twitter. It's at Yenna Benna. It's Y-E-N-N-A-B-E-N-N-A. And on Instagram, it is also at Yenna Benna, but the Yenna has three N's in it. I welcome you to find me on those platforms so we can discuss our coastlines and conservation. 